We're a church that believes that the role of the pulpit isn't so much for someone to stand up here and offer good advice for how to make your life better. We believe that the role of the pulpit is to open the Word of God and to unfold its meaning so that we together enter into an encounter with the living Christ in the power of His Spirit. So with that, I invite you to pull out a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. And we are going to open the word this morning and see what the Lord would speak to us. If you're new to the Bible and you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can find our text on page 840. Please do have that open because we will be referring to the text repeatedly this morning as we continue our sermon series in Luke and Acts. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26 to verse 39. Let's open our ears, because what we're about to hear is the word of the Lord. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he, that is Jesus, came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times. And he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many pigs feeding there on the mountain. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the pigs. And he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear And he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him, that is Jesus. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I ask that in these next moments you would indeed meet with us, 
that you, Spirit, would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to welcome your word, that you, Jesus, would stand before us today, comforting us, challenging us, speaking to us your good news, and transforming us by your power. I pray this in your mighty name. Amen. That's a wild story, isn't it? It kind of makes us feel out of our depth, maybe a bit in over our heads. There's a scene in one of my favorite movies. Uh, It's called The Lord of the Rings, where the company of the ring has to travel through a mountain to get to the other side. It's called the Mines of Moria's. And the company is going through the mountain and they end up getting ambushed by enemies. And then at one point, they're in this large hall and they hear this thudding in the deep. There is something of another world that has risen up and is now coming after them. You can see the light at the end of the cavern. Here's the company. And the light is coming towards them. And it's this ominous power that they know is coming. And what happens in the movie is the company of the ring, they look around at each other. And they're like, what is this? They have no idea. They have no categories. They're totally out of their element and in over their heads. There's only one person who knows what's going on, and it's Gandalf. And this is what he says to them. He says, this foe is beyond any of you. Run. (laughs) And so they do. And I, I think we can relate to that feeling of being out of our element in moments when spiritual realities present themselves to us. Whether it's reading a Bible story like this one, Or when in real life something happens and you can tell there is more going on here than meets the eye. There's another will at work beneath the surface of the events that I'm experiencing. And we can feel out of our element, especially if you grew up in the rationalism of the West. I grew up here in Canada in a culture where to believe in such realities is is quite frankly silly. Those are the myths and superstitions of ancient peoples, right? We have science now. We know uh, the, the amount of psychological disorders that were no doubt present in the ancient world and that in their outmoded science, they chalked up to demon possession. And so now we can move on beyond such silly things. Those are the assumptions at play in our culture. But... The Bible actually puts the realities of spiritual beings before us really clearly. And when it does, we actually need to to take our presuppositions and submit them to the Bible and let it reshape our worldview. There are spiritual beings for good that are working with God to bring about God's good purposes in the world. And we learn in the Bible that there are spiritual forces that are in rebellion against God. They want to destroy and distort God's good creation and especially his most prized possession. It's us, humans. So it would be a mistake this morning if you're here and you're a bit skeptic to ignore the realities 
of spiritual beings. And, and don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean we need to look for angels and demons around every corner and turn over every stone looking for them. I think what C.S. Lewis said in the screw tape letters is right. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. He said, one is to disbelieve their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. We want to navigate our way within that tension. And so faced with this story this morning, I hope that we can push through uh, any skepticism or discomfort that we bring so that we can hear and we can see what God is speaking to us in this passage. With that said, this story is a storm. If you remember last week, we've just come through a story where there was a physical storm where Jesus was crossing the lake and this storm rises up and he's asleep in the boat and his disciples are like, Jesus, we're perishing. It's absolute chaos. And he gets up, he rebukes the wind and the waves, he calms a storm. He comes from that storm into this, another storm this morning. It's a storm of a story. It's a storm in this man's life. And so here's how we're gonna navigate our way through it. We are gonna look at the power of Jesus. We're gonna look at the transformation of the man and we're gonna look at the response of the people. So first, the power of Jesus. Notice first that Jesus is going across the lake. And, and what we don't know because we don't know the geography is that he's going to a country that was non-Jewish, right? The fact that there's a herd of pigs should clue us into that. Jewish people did not raise pigs. This was Gentile territory. And he was going to a, a rocky and craggy kind of hostile environment. It wasn't like the fertile um, west coast uh, of the Sea of Galilee. So this is where he came from, Capernaum. And he goes across into this region, and it's really rocky. And uh, he also goes to this place where there's like tombs, right? Did you notice the tombs? This is setting up a horror story. It's like, uh, it's crazy. But Jesus goes there, right? We often tend to think that God is somehow, uh, like he doesn't go to dirty places or scary places, but Jesus goes there. He comes through the chaos of the storm into the chaos of this man's life. And what Jesus had been doing on the other side of the lake is he had been going around announcing the kingdom of God and explaining it and manifesting it in healings and in driving out unclean spirits. The time had come for God to set everything right. And he was doing it in and through Jesus. And that means confronting evil. And that means setting people free from its dominion. And so even as Jesus gets out of the boat, did you notice how immediately the man meets him? It's like as Jesus gets out, his presence poses a threat to the evil that is there. And this man comes at him and he's naked. He's haunting the tombs of the area. He's totally alienated. He's not in his right mind. And when Jesus sees this chaos and death at work, his response is to confront it. His response is to deal with it. Look at verse 28 and 29. There we see that Jesus had commanded the spirit to come out. And in response, uh, the man or the spirits in the man, it's hard to tell which, they cry out and fall before him. 
And so we see this is setting up this picture of Jesus in authority over what's going on here. But look at verse 30. When he asks, what is your name? The demon does not reply with a name. He replies with a number. And we find out the magnitude of the storm. You know how there's like different classifications of storm? One, two, three, four, five, depending on how uh, hard the winds are coming. Here we find out the magnitude of the storm in this man's life. It's legion. What does that mean? A legion was a Roman military unit of about 6,000 soldiers. 6,000. It's not saying there were literally 6,000 demons in this man. It was saying there was a lot. A huge force. The Roman military was ruthless and violent. There's a reason Rome became the biggest empire of the ancient world. They were violent. And so what we are faced with here um, is a hellstorm of colossal proportions in this man's life. Right? So far in Luke, Jesus has cast out an unclean spirit with the man in the synagogue, right? One unclean spirit. Uh, it mentions at the beginning of chapter 8 that eight, or sorry, seven spirits had gone out of Mary Magdalene. But now here it's like, okay, how is Jesus going to handle legion? This is a whole other category. And so far in the life of this town and in the life of this man, there had been no answer. They had tried to deal with him, right? Trying to control and subdue him, but to no lasting effect. They were in over their heads. And I'm sure we can relate to that feeling. When you read the news headlines, when you experience trauma, when you go through relational and emotional wreckage in your life, and you're in over your heads. But the picture that we see of Jesus is that he's not in over his head. Before Jesus, what does legion do? It's driven to its knees. And it begs. It pleads. I love how John Calvin puts it. He said, they trembled in the presence of their judge. So in actual fact, in Jesus versus legion, this is not a clash of equal powers. Jesus is in control. He's the judge. He has authority over them, even though they are in rebellion. That's the kind of power he has. And ironically, the question that Jesus' disciples ask after he calms the storm, who then is this? who speaks and even the wind and the waves obey him is answered by these demons. He's the son of the most high God. He is unlike any other. It's not an equal fight, but Legion tries to negotiate. Did you notice that? Verse 32, don't send us into the abyss, they say. Send us into the herd of pigs. Abyss. Now that's not a word you hear every day, is it? So the abyss in the ancient world was kind of like a pit for spirits. It was like jail for dark spirits. That's how it's used in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation. And they say to Jesus, don't send us there, as in somehow they know Jesus has the power to do it. He has the authority to do it. Instead, they ask permission. Note again, they're asking him permission. 
to enter the herd of pigs. And somehow, you know, they're trying to stir up destruction however they can. And so they try this angle. And here's one of the problems with this story that we can have, is we might wonder, why on earth does Jesus grant their request? Right? Why does Jesus negotiate? If he has this power, why doesn't he just say, no, you're done. Be gone. Right? Why the herd of pigs. And and this has troubled readers of the Bible for a long time. It's probably on my top 100 list of questions to ask the risen Lord (laughs) when I see him face to face. And you might have thoughts on this. I have thoughts on this. But because there's nothing clear in the text, I just want to show us what is clear. That what we see in the pigs is we have a very tangible picture of the impact of the demonic, okay? We see it in the man, the destruction in this man's life. But it's almost like in the pigs, we have this like fast-forwarded montage of what the end of these powers are all about, and they are about destruction and death. So they go into the pigs, and like fast-forward, the pigs are like, and they book it, like down the cliff, into the water, and they're destroyed. And what this shows us is that these powers aren't to be trifled with, right? They they have one goal. They want to unleash chaos and ruin in our lives. And we need to know that whatever evil we're up against, whether it's evil that rises up from within us or whether it's evil that's coming at us from others or, or whether it's systemic evil in our institutions and in our world. Jesus has power over it. And in his love for us, he is moving to confront it and deal with it. He's not in over his head. That is the power of Jesus. Second, let's look at the transformation of man. You know those uh, before and after pictures of people who've done like a weight loss program um, or like the makeover shows? I wonder what his before and after picture looked like. Like it's so dramatic, right? He had been naked, out of his mind, uncontrollable, living among the dead. And in verse 35, when the townspeople come, they see a man sitting down at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind. Like, imagine their shock. The demons are gone, the storm has passed, and they see this complete transformation. It's so drastic, and Jesus has done it in his life. Right where there was chaos and self-hatred and debasement, there is now peace and love and dignity. This is starting to look like a human being again. This is what Jesus does. He restores people. He restores purpose and love and dignity and value and health and relationships and life. And he's done it in so many of us in this room. Where you can wonder about, oh, where would I be if it weren't for Christ? And the picture is not a pretty one. I wonder that all the time. 
Where would I be if not for Christ's saving power and transformative work in my life? And the transformation is so uh, all-consuming that that then Luke directs our attention to how the man responds. I love how he responds in verse 38. Look there with me. How does he respond? He's begging to go with Jesus. Before it was the the demons begging Jesus not to torment him, and now he's begging, but for a very different reason. He's like, Jesus, I want to come with you. I want to be with you. Oh, please let me come Do we have that kind of propulsion to be with Jesus? Are we aware of his boundless mercy and love for us? I mean, imagine beginning each day in the unshakable awareness that the creator of the universe loves you and delights in you because of Jesus. Imagine that. Think about how that would drive you to want to be with this one who loves you more and more. The man is desperate to go with Jesus, but Jesus bizarrely says no, right? He he denies him because Jesus has a better plan. You'll see in the text that Jesus only denies him once the townspeople ask Jesus to leave. Why does that matter? Because they've asked him to leave, and Jesus is going to respect their will, but he is not going to leave them without a witness to himself. Even as they turn him away, Jesus is thinking about their good and how he can still leave someone behind who's going to bring them good news that they need to hear. And so when he says no to the man, you might think, oh, Jesus is being really cold, right? That's kind of mean. No, he's empowering him. He's commissioning him, you stay here. Go home, share with your people what God has done for you. And look at verse 39. There's a a couple interesting turns of phrases here. It says that um, he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Jesus. Jesus had told him, Share what God has done for you. And he starts talking about Jesus. It's telling us something about who this Jesus is. The second thing I want you to notice here is that the word proclaim in my translation, in the NIV, it uses the word tell that he told people, but it's actually a much stronger word than that. It's the Greek verb keruso. Can you say that with me on the count of three? One, two, three. Keruso. It means to preach or proclaim. The only people who have carousoed in the gospel of Luke so far are John the Baptist and Jesus. And now this man, a Gentile, possessed with legion, is now commissioned by Jesus, and he is carousoing. Isn't that awesome? Like, he's the most unlikely candidate Right? Where are his qualifications? Where is his degrees? Where is the proof of his fitness for service? And it's this. He's met Jesus. And Jesus has done a transformative work in his life. It's so simple. Look at what Jesus tells him. He doesn't tell him to preach a doctoral thesis on the Trinity. He doesn't ask him to explain the hypostatic union of the divine and human natures in Christ. 
He says in verse 39, share what God has done for you. That's all. Share what God has done for you. Isn't that such a comfort to us who feel so clumsy and so inadequate in our attempts to tell people about Jesus and and all Jesus wants from us? Share what God has done. Share what God has done in your life. You can always speak to what God has done for you. You don't need to have all the answers. You don't need a theological degree. You just need to be with Jesus, and you need to know Jesus. And we need these daily times of of reflection and prayer, right? That's like tuning in. God, what are you doing in my life? What have you been doing this past week? What have you been doing this past year? It's incredible to hear Catherine as she's speaking just this awareness of how God is leading her. I think that's an example for all of us to follow, that we would come to God with that mindfulness to to kind of say no to the busyness and clutter of our daily life for a time and get with God and tune into what he's doing in our lives. Then we can share. It just flows out of us with other people. The transformation in this man is so incredible. It's so complete. It's what Jesus does. Would we welcome to do it further in us? I want us to look at the response of the people now. So as the townspeople arrived at the coast of the sea, here's here's what we might have expected them to do. Right? They might have seen this man and the utter transformation in him and run up to him and say, hey, Joe, you're back. Like, congratulations. It's great to see you. Come on home. Or you might have uh, expected them to then go to Jesus and, and have, having seen the power of Jesus to transform this mind, go, Jesus, oh, Jesus, wouldn't you come? Wouldn't you come to our town? My daughter's sick. She needs you. My son has been oppressed for so many years and there's nothing we can do. Wouldn't you come? We're going to bring our sick. We're going to bring our oppressed to you. Jesus, wouldn't you come? Or you'd think they rejoice and sing like a hymn. He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the captives free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. You would have expected that. Much like the woman in the Pharisee's house as she clings to Jesus and stakes her life on him. But how do they respond? The word is fear. Fear, it happens twice in the text. In verse 35, they are frightened. And then in verse 37, their fear is heightened. Uh, It says they were gripped with great fear. They're slaves to it, right? It's gotten a hold on them. Why are they afraid? I I think there's lots of reasons they might be afraid, but I think there are two that we clearly see in the text. The first one is that they fear a power they cannot control. I'll say that again. They fear a power they cannot control. New Testament scholar Fred Craddock makes the insight that these people had learned to manage the evil in their lives, to coexist with it, to get by, right? Life carries on, and there's the odd disturbance here and there where the guy breaks free of his chains and runs back to the tombs, but all in all, we're, we're, we're managing, right? And when you've been in that adaptive state for long enough, it becomes normal and comfortable and familiar. And what happens is Jesus comes and he totally upsets all of that. 
He comes, and, and, and he's not just interested in managing the evil. He totally eradicates it, right? And they can see that Jesus has a power that can't be rivaled, but do they want to let that power into their town, right? They can't control Jesus. They can't predict what he's going to do. Like, how far is he going to go to confront the evil in our lives? And they would rather have the demons they know than have the Jesus they can't control. You follow me? And that can be the same for us. Too often, we're content to just coexist with our demons and coexist with the evil in our lives, right? It's, it becomes about sin management, How can I manage my sin? How can I keep it down below the surface? And you nurse it, and you keep it alive just enough for no one to take notice. And you think you can manage it, but that's the great lie. Even as you try to manage it, it's going to have a destructive effect in your life. And it's robbing you of of the fullness that God intends for you. And what has been shown to be true over and over and over again, and sadly in the media, there's all these stories of Christian leaders who who make blunders and it just explodes in their face. But but here's here's what happens. That that sin that you think you can manage is like a small fire and it doesn't take much for it to become a blaze that just wreaks destruction and havoc in your life. Jesus didn't die on the cross so we can flirt with sin. He died that we might be dead to it. That's how far he went to confront evil. It cost him a great price. He died on a Roman cross to open up the way for sin and evil to actually be dealt with. Not just managed. That's how deep his love is for us. That's how far he goes to kill the thing that's killing us. And so to let Jesus in is to let the Savior in, and somehow this town knows it. They know that that he's not just a Savior, but he's a Lord. He's not one we can control. We can only choose to let him in or keep him out, and he'll respect our decision. So this morning, if you haven't yet let Jesus in, what I'm saying to you might sound scary, but let me tell you, it's the best thing for you. Just let him in. Let him start to put your life back together. Very quickly, the second reason that I think they're afraid, the first was that they fear power they can't control. The second reason is they fear a person who values life over money. The way that things play out as Jesus saves this man's life had had practical consequences for this community, right? Like the pigs are destroyed. How many pigs? Luke says it was a large herd. In Mark, we find out that the number was about 2,000. And I think in the time before like mass meat production, that was a lot. And so you can imagine the economic impact on the community, right? What would that do to the stock market? Pork prices just plummeting, oh my goodness. Man is saved, but at what cost? And is that cost acceptable to the people? Clearly not. And that turns the question to us, do we share Jesus' assessment of the worth of human life? Are we willing to have the gospel affect our bank accounts? 
when Jesus calls us to spend ourselves and our resources and our time and our effort and our money on behalf of others and for the sake of his kingdom. The townspeople are gripped with fear and it leads them to make the biggest mistake they could ever make. They say to Jesus, Jesus, would you please leave? And he respects them and he goes and he ends up crossing an entire lake just to rescue one man and then he goes home and that man carries the message to his own people. So where does this leave us? I think the overall um, impression that we need to have is in the midst of the storms that we're facing, Jesus is there and he has power over it. He has power over the evil in your life. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then after he gives the great commission telling his disciples to make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and get this, he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so as we walk through situations and encounter situations that we know we're in over our head, we can know that there's one who is with us who isn't. Jesus is not in over his head. And when you face that storm, you face it from the position of victory in and with Christ. The powers of evil have been disarmed. We stand on the other side of the cross and resurrection. And even if, and here I want to be sensitive, because there are some of us who have been enduring evil and walking through whatever it might be, medical conditions, suffering, relational wreckage for years, and we're wondering when it's going to stop. But even if in his sovereign will, he permits evil to overcome you, even if it kills you, the power of God that raised Christ from the dead will raise you too. And that incredible future of resurrection invades the present moment and disarms our fears and frees us to live wholly given over to the will of our Father. And that's a source of incredible hope and joy for us. Before the worship team comes, I just want to leave us with these words from a hymn by John Newton. It says, As surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you that love his name shall triumph in him too. Amen?